0: So what price did ABB pay exactly for its extensive criminal history record? For companies that have to decide whether to disclose and may hesitate because of their criminal histories, the answer now is fairly clear that it is a better idea in many cases to voluntarily disclose, remediate, and cooperate. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkoff. Well, hello everybody! Happy New Year to you. Today, we're going to look at the ABB FCPA settlement. Hope everybody's doing well. Wanted to talk about this just because it's kind of a controversial case in the sense that the Justice Department put out a new FCPA or corporate compliance corporate enforcement program, and one of the sort of highlights of that was its unwillingness to allow or give any benefits to recidivists? Well, ABB comes along shortly after this and is a three-time loser when it comes to FCPA cases and yet walks away with a $315 million settlement. I know that no one would ever think that a $315 million settlement was somehow a slap on the wrist, but in the case of the ABB situation, it definitely raised issues in the context of the FCPA enforcement program because it was a little bit lower than I think people would have expected in this situation, particularly when we've had billion-dollar settlements like Ericsson, Goldman Sachs. So let's start and talk about this case because we talk about ABB as a three-ton loser in foreign bribery enforcement, but there also was a prior conviction that they had for price fixing or collusion in the antitrust arena that they ended up having a settlement as well as the other ones so case starts in South Africa and ends in South Africa but two ABB subsidiaries one in South Africa and the other in Switzerland each separately agreed to enter a guilty plea to FCPA conspiracy for violation of the bribery provisions and ABB's parent agreed to enter into a three-year deferred prosecution agreement for the same conduct now, ABB also resolved SEC charges for 75 million. And then there were also foreign prosecutions, including in South Africa, Switzerland, and an expected resolution in Germany, which were all part of the package. And the Justice Department agreed to credit up to half of the 315 million for ABB's payments of penalties to the South African authorities. So the South African authorities simultaneously announced a settlement with ABB under which ABB would pay. to the South African government. So I mentioned ABB's criminal history, and it's a little bit lengthy here. It started with a guilty plea in 2001 for bid rigging involving a contract in Egypt, a guilty plea in 2004 for FCPA bribery violations in Nigeria, a 2010 deferred prosecution agreement and U.S. subsidiary guilty plea for FCPA violations in Mexico and Iraq, And administrative resolutions with European and Brazilian competition authorities relating to the Nigeria situation in 2013 and 2014, respectively. Notwithstanding this lengthy criminal history, DOJ cited ABB's extraordinary cooperation and extensive remediation. And ABB did not earn credit for voluntarily disclosing the violations, but did promptly notify the Justice Department after learning of the conduct. It's actually kind of a a weird situation. ABB's lawyers called up DOJ's FCPA unit and said that they wanted to come in and make a voluntary disclosure. They didn't tell them who it was for and what it was about. In the interim between the date that they called and the scheduled meeting date, press report came out about the FCPA or bribery problem. And so the question was whether they would get voluntary disclosure credit, and the Justice Department sort of said that they can't technically under the way that the rules are written, but they did point out the extraordinary effort or all the underlying effort that they were making to try to do this, to try to come in and voluntarily disclose the matter. So the FCPA violations stemmed from ABB's bribery payments to a single high-ranking, it was sort of the lead official, from ESCOM Holdings, South Korea's state-owned energy company, to obtain confidential information and win lucrative contracts. In the end, DOJ agreed to award ABB a 25% discount from the middle point, not the low point, but the middle point between the mid and high range of the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So, Let's take a moment and get into the details of the bribery schemes because they're invaluable to me in learning how criminals think. And bribery always involves some scheme to transfer money and steal it from the organization to fund bribery payments to a government official. And I always say that compliance professionals like to comb through the wreckage and turn the inquiry into a self-assessment. And the questions that they ask, one... If someone in my organization attempted to implement such a scheme, would our company's controls detect or prevent the misconduct? If not, where would the weakness exist? And would my company's due diligence and or transaction screening process uncover the red flags surrounding the use of the third party or third parties at issue? So it's all important. And this is actually one way we all learn, I think, from enforcement actions It's a good process to go through just to understand where your program is and whether or not you could end up stopping and preventing this scheme from occurring. So let's start with the basic facts. Between 2014 and 2017, ABB paid these bribes to the high-ranking ESCOM official. And to obtain business advantages in the award of contracts or subcontracts. To this end, they engaged multiple subcontractors who were linked to the South African government official and made payments to these subcontractors. The focus is on two. And ABB engaged these subcontractors despite their poor qualifications and lack of experience and the fact that the government official referred them to the first subcontractor. In exchange, For these bribery payments, ABB secured improper confidential information needed for the bidding process and securing the valuable contracts. And as part of the scheme, also ABB conducted sham negotiations to obtain contracts at inflated prices that ABB had prearranged with the South African government official on the condition that ABB employ a particular subcontractor. This was number two linked to the government official. ABB falsely recorded all the payments to the subcontractors as legitimate business expenses, despite the fact that a portion of the payments were in fact bribes. So the first project was the Kusil project, and I may be pronouncing it wrong, but this was for a control and instrumentation work, or called CNI, on a large coal-fired power plant at Kusil in Witbank, South Africa. And ABB's ability to secure the contract was dependent on its engagement of this subcontractor, number one, who was introduced to them by the head of ESCOM. And ESCOM introduced, ESCOM is the state-owned energy company, electricity company. And ESCOM introduced the executive from subcontractor one to ABB as a friend, in quotes, and someone who would be, quote, interesting, close quote, for ABB to engage. An ABB manager sought to onboard Subcontractor 1, however, despite the fact that Subcontractor 1 did not have the requisite qualifications or experience, and Subcontractor 1 submitted a proposal that increased the overall cost of the Cusio project by $9 million. ABB submitted its bid and learned that it was $45 million higher than its nearest competitor. The ESCOM official and Subcontractor 1 secured confidential information and during the non-negotiations over the contractor provided confidential information and subsequently ABB lowered the price for its bid substantially at the direction of the SCOM official which was delivered through the subcontractor and shortly after ABB was selected as the winner of the contract the high-ranking official, the head of ESCOM, was suspended, although he was brought back uh, subsequently. Notwithstanding this suspension, ESCOM agreed to adhere to the contract and the engagement of the subcontractor through whom the bribes would be paid. So ESCOM agreed to pay a 10% advance fee in the amount of... $798,000, 798000 a portion of which was intended as bribes for the CEO. And ABB, of course, experienced difficulties in the execution of the contract because of subcontractor 1's poor performance and lack of experience. So the next scheme related more to the use of variation orders. So in 2015, the high-ranking official was reinstated at Escom. ABB established a relationship with an additional subcontractor, number two, and this subcontractor too failed various portions of the ABB, ABB due diligence process, including its financial stability and qualifications. And an ABB manager sought to approve the subcontractor, but in the end, because they couldn't get them through the due diligence process, they required a specific waiver of due diligence requirements to be approved and then ABB approved the waiver. And on its face, the approval of a waiver creates significant red flags. And there were obvious technical deficiencies with the subcontractor to work through other qualified, and the work ended up being done by other qualified and technically capable subcontractors on the project. Now, the way the bribery payments were made here was not through payments made through the subcontractor, but It went through subcontractor two, but the pricing was set where ABB and ESCOM, the ESCOM official agreed to inflate the costs of variation orders. So there would be a variation order, a change to the plan, and they would agree on a set price for the change in plan. And then they would require, the ESCOM official would require then ABB to use subcontractor two for the project. And then they engaged in sham negotiations but ultimately agreed on a previously agreed upon price. So a portion of the payments then that were made to subcontractor two or the variation order funded bribes to the ESCOM official. So there were four variation orders using this bribery mechanism and the total of the variation orders was more than $57 million, a portion of which was paid to the ESCOM official as bribe. Interestingly, this project never got completed It was stopped in the middle, but nonetheless, ABB earned significant funds from it. So let's take a moment and look at sort of lessons learned. The big picture here with ABB, the three-time loser, settling the FCPA case. And there are important precedent and policy reminders and always compliance lessons learned here. And ABB gives companies with a prior criminal history a path to follow if they get caught again and you need to face another inquiry by the Justice Department. In here, ABB dodged a significant bullet. Interestingly, there was no appointment of an independent compliance monitor, which DOJ has been regularly applying to similarly situated companies. So ABB took important first steps when learning about the potential violation. It immediately scheduled a meeting with DOJ to complete its initial disclosure. And they made a commitment to change and not only to attack the controls, but also to go after and improve the overall organizations, not just the part dealing in South Africa, and improve their corporate culture. ABB earned high praise for its extraordinary cooperation, a term that is rarely awarded to a company when seeking the full benefits under the corporate enforcement policy. And the settlement papers, however, didn't give us any detail as to what made ABB's cooperation extraordinary beyond the often used list of cooperation factors. It would be good to know exactly what made it extraordinary versus ordinary substantial cooperation. Now, ABB also received the full benefit of DOJ's anti-piling on policy and was credited with the SEC settlement and monies paid to the South African and Swiss governments and eventually credit for the settlement paid to Germany. As DOJ has expanded its law enforcement coordination program with international partners, it's embracing more and more of the anti-piling-on efforts to recognize the portions of payments made to foreign law enforcement agencies. So what price did ABB pay exactly for its extensive criminal history record? For companies that have to decide whether to disclose and may hesitate because of their criminal histories, the answer now is fairly clear that it is a better idea in many cases to voluntarily disclose, remediate, and cooperate. The underlying facts of the ABB FCPA bribes and how they occurred in South Africa raise a very disturbing issue, an example of the absence of legal and compliance, independence, and authority. For example, the facts show that when a subcontractor could not pass through ABB's due diligence program, an ABB manager demanded that the subcontractor be approved given the need to close the lucrative deal. ABB's business was able to overcome legal and compliance objections to the third party and secure a waiver of its existing policies. Now, that to me shows that the legal and compliance function, at least the compliance function with the due diligence program did not have the independence or the authority to withstand the pressure from the business. And this is a screaming red flag by itself. What was the rationale for the waiver? What could ever be the rationale? Who reviewed it? And the failure to adhere to existing controls demonstrates the risks that can result from a failure to reinforce and emphasize the importance of compliance controls. To me, it was an ethical test. Can you turn down a potential business opportunity because of the risks of violations of the FCPA or any other type of law? So ABB's compliance culture obviously did not elevate the role of legal and compliance and empower them to block a transaction, insist on addressing the compliance issues and receive the support from top management. So in the absence of this basic position and equation, legal and compliance is always going to fall to business pressure, and the company will not be able to promote a culture of compliance. It'll be inconsistent. It's remarkable, though, how often this breakdown occurs in companies that fall to an FCPA enforcement action or even other violations like sanctions and other things. The second, I thought, Interesting aspect of this is the local business requirements. Foreign governments often impose local business mandates on foreign companies as a condition of acceptance of significant contract or bid. And this is a reoccurring issue in the oil and gas industry, any the energy industry. These local requirements create significant risks, and navigating them is very difficult to uncover. Here we had the fact that we had a referral from the government official. And that referral is for subcontractor one was the kiss of death, let alone subcontractor one's inability to meet the technical requirements to provide the services. Subcontractor two seriously was not qualified. And in any event, the absence of these qualifications, the lack of this sort of objective viewpoint of the two subcontractors shows you how dangerous the local business requirement can be. The last point with regard to the sham negotiations and pricing is it underscores yet again the importance of scrutinizing specific transactions, pricing levels, and questioning red flags to make sure no corrupt indicia exist. In South Africa, the ultimate price was agreed to in advance with a built-in extra amount to pay bribes to the senior executive. It does not appear that these pricing arrangements were ever scrutinized. And these terms have to be subject to historical analyses and an independent review by business and compliance representatives to ensure overall reasonableness. All in all, a pretty interesting case at the end of last year, the ABB case, and it provides a lot of roadmaps, the absence of an independent compliance monitor, and roadmaps for extraordinary cooperation and extensive remediation. So interesting case. Take a look at it when you get a chance. And it's definitely a case that's worth you know looking for lessons learned. Thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you next week with another episode of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Stay well. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.